welcome to the Jungian Theology Podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. A new model of psychological types with John Beebe, M.D. This episode is part one of the series, A New Model of Psychological Types. Jung's theory of psychological types is an attempt to make comprehensible the regular differences between individuals. His concepts of introversion and extroversion, thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition, have gained wide currency since their introduction in 1920. However, applying these concepts to practical situations is often confusing. Dr. Beebe's new model of typology shows how the eight types relate to complexes that can be recognized in dreams and styles of behavior. The model, which permits the types to be recognized more easily and with more precision, is illustrated with examples drawn from clinical work and works of creative imagination. It was recorded in 1988. John Beebe, MD, a physician specializing in psychotherapy, is a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and a past president of the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco. He is the author of Integrity in Depth, editor of C.G. Jung's Aspects of the Masculine, and co-author of The Presence of the Feminine in Film. He is the founding editor of the San Francisco Institute Library Journal, now titled Jung Journal, Culture and Psyche, and was the first American co-editor of the London-based Journal of Analytical Psychology. An international lecturer, he is widely known for his work on psychological types, the psychology of moral processes, and the Jungian understanding of film. Recently, he has been engaged in training the first generation of analytical psychologists in China. And we'll have links in the show notes to the complete series, as well as to other seminars by John Beebe. And now here's the lecture. These days, we think we know so much about types because... uh, it's become a big business. Uh, last March, a year ago March, in uh, Fortune magazine, there was an article that uh, personality tests are back. And the personality test they meant was the Myers-Briggs type inventory. And they said that last year a million and a half people took the Myers-Briggs type inventory and that this is now the most widely used uh, personality test in America. Of course, when America gets around to something, it does it in a big way. It either doesn't do it at all or it goes all out. And uh, so nowadays, you don't have to tell people um, uh, that there are thinking types and feeling types and intuitive types and sensation types. It's on the back of cereal boxes. Um, And so I'm not going to exactly reinvent the wheel uh, for you, although uh, along the way I may take it off a few times and show you the spokes more than once so that we can get back to what the basic elements and units are. What I want today is to get us beyond uh, glibness and a kind of uh, quick superficiality uh, with the types and uh, get us to rethink the whole thing before we lose it to the collective. 
and that we lose it to uh, a very superficial um, uh, ego-based, uh, will-oriented, and um, uh, adaptation-centered uh, point of view, and recover what I hope is the true and Jungian spirit uh, of type which is that it is at the core of the problem of individuation. And this, of course, is the way Jung himself uh, reached the type theory. I would even say reached for the type theory in the midst of... um, the darkest and most perplexing time in his life. It isn't that he hadn't had hints when he was still um, the very ambitious um, young clergyman's son uh, turned physician um, had married the wealthy Emma um, had connected himself to prestigious doctors uh, like Bloiler and Janet and eventually Freud and uh, was garnering an international reputation for himself as um, a lecturer, a physician, and a white-coated researcher and was... uh, looking for ways to extend his influence and his reputation very much as uh, uh, a young psychiatrist at Michael Reese Hospital might do today with uh, some kind of uh, immunological, uh, psychoimmunological research. Um, In those days, um, Jung's... uh, claim to fame uh, was the work he was doing with the word association test. And you know that in those days uh, association psychology was uh, the psychology of the day. And uh, introspectionism uh, uh, was at its heyday. This was the last gasp of uh, a certain kind of uh, early um, uh, uh, 20th century, late 19th century attempt to uh, make phenomenological research a kind of basis for psychology before uh, the game was entirely lost to behaviorism. And uh, the thought was that by asking people to report on the thoughts passing through their mind, it would be possible to map out the associations of the human mind. Um, So people were asked to focus on various feeling states and various idea states, and particularly um, word association was thought to be important. Perhaps one could map the linkages between words by getting the spontaneous associations to a list of stimulus words. The only problem was that occasionally um, uh, people stalled 
or lapsed or couldn't think of a word or got or got lost or uh, stayed with the last word and kept thinking about it and had various kinds of interfering responses. And uh, the first researchers simply threw those out. They were some kind of uh, static that was interfering with the test. But uh, Jung, right at the beginning, decided to um, focus on the aberrant responses, focus on the, uh, the, uh, the static, on the places that didn't fit. And um, developed um, the idea that the interfering forces were feeling-toned complexes. And that by checking uh, the different words on which there were stalled responses or perseverated responses or extremely peculiar responses to the hundred words in the word association test of want, uh, that uh, he could map out uh, the likely complexes that were uh, affecting a given individual. So this was the beginning of uh, complex psychology. And indeed, for a long time, uh, Jung called his work complex psychology, and it attracted, as you know, the interest of Freud, because uh, this gave some kind of empirical uh, proof for the theory of repression. And under the influence of complex theory, um, Freud went so far as to speak of uh, the Oedipus problem as the Oedipus complex. And although later, after Jung and Freud split, um, Freud banned the term complex as not in, uh, intrinsic to psychoanalysis, it still lives a kind of shadow life even, uh, even among psychoanalysts. And of course, for, for us Jungians, it's the cornerstone or it's the centerpiece of the theory. But it was still a way of working that enabled uh, Jung to be somehow outside the process. And he was looking at people very much uh, as a scientific observer on the model of 19th century science. And he was some kind of um, um, psychological, um, pathological anatomist, very much like uh, the German uh, pathologist Virchow, who discovered all kinds of things about cirrhosis of the liver and other by dissecting the liver. Uh, Jung really imagined that he could dissect the psyche in a rather cool way. And if you read those early psychoanalytic papers, like the one on number symbolism, you see a very brilliant uh, young man uh, appraising the psyche from outside, uh, not yet touched by the experience himself, uh, even though some of his own associations uh, are used in the book on word association and some of those of Sabina Spielrein and uh, so forth, and one actually can see uh, protocols that tell us quite a lot about uh, what his complexes were in, with regard to her and so forth. Nevertheless, even with regard to his own psyche, he was 
still looking at it from outside, very much as Freud had looked at his own psyche from outside, because one can take a kind of detached exterior perspective um, uh, to oneself just as one can to, uh, to other people's material. <coughs> well then, what happened happened to everyone who's ever touched the unconscious. There comes a point when this all breaks down and uh, you realize that you are the thing you're studying and, uh, so to speak, the snake bites you, and you can no longer simply uh, detail the lovely uh, colorings on the back of its skin and uh, figure out its patterns from outside, and uh, uh, you fall into the soup in a, in a big and bad way. And, of course, this exactly is what happened uh, to Jung, because uh, he and Freud... Uh, sort of together discovered uh, transference and countertransference and uh, the enormous uh, confusion and complexity that comes up uh, when two uh, psychological individuals of extremely different temperaments try to interact with each other in depth. And they got into, as you know, a magically charged and extremely uh, hostile and difficult uh, relationship in which uh, both men, um, <coughs> despite their greatness and despite their psychological acumen and despite their practices and their work with patients and so forth, behaved, I think, extremely badly. And uh, that story is all uh, well told in um, the Freud-Jung correspondence. And at a critical moment um, um, in their dialogue, um, Freud corrected uh, um, a slip of the pen of Jung's. And uh, Jung flew off the handle in an extraordinary letter uh, written um, December 18th, of 1912, in which he basically uh, tells Freud, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think of you. I'm not going to write simply a, another professional letter. I'm going to write a personal letter to help you. And uh, I'm going to uh, point out, and in effect he gave an Eric Bernian analysis of the game Sigmund Freud was playing. He says, you know, you uh, take it upon yourself to point out the faults in all of your uh, students' eyes and in the hope of correcting their neuroses. But as long as you are so busy doing this, it has a counterproductive effect because all of us immediately realize that uh, we couldn't possibly have any neurosis because you are the most neurotic person of all of us if you have to do this all the time. And so from now on, I'm going to help you by pointing this out to you whenever you do this. Well, that worked. <laughs> Freud uh, wrote back, spare me your personal communications. And uh, Jung wrote back, well, I never thrust my friendship on anyone, the rest is silence. And uh, 
uh, within a year he was out of the psychoanalytic movement. Now, a year to the day after sending that letter, uh, Jung had a famous dream, which you can read in Memories, Dreams, Reflections. I love to go back over this material. I think that's an extraordinary book, and one can't read it too many times. I just found myself looking at it again and just seeing uh, um, how much that book fills your fantasy and how it becomes part of you. So I'm never sure when I tell this how much uh, I, uh, I elaborated or change it in some way. But uh, uh, Jung had a dream, and this comes at that peculiar time, you know, when he's having... Uh, images of all of Europe being covered with blood and he's uh, beginning to feel that he ought to be getting down into the unconscious himself and he's already had one of the very first uh, experiences of active imagination in which he imagines the ground literally giving way under his feet and going down into some sticky slime and uh, going into a cave and uh, looking around and uh, first in pitch blackness and uh, finally tries to get out of there and then just lots of blood uh, pours out of the cave uh, and in that cave there has been a blonde uh, man lying dead with a wound on his head some kind of dead hero figure but instead of um, rebirth as he had expected, what pours out of the cave is blood. <clears throat> so that was fresh in his mind. That experience was just six days old when he had not an active imagination, but a night dream. Um, and this dream is, as I said, dreamed a year to the day after sending the letter to Freud, in which um, he and... Uh, a primitive uh, brown-skinned man with a kind of fierce or mean uh, aspect to him um, lie in wait um, for Siegfried who must be killed. And just at a certain point, having heard Siegfried's horn, then Siegfried comes over the mountain pass and at a particular point they shoot him dead. Um, then for Jung, there's a tremendous feeling of disgust and remorse at having killed so beautiful a man. Um, then a rainstorm comes, and uh, Jung is very afraid he's going to be caught but uh, the rain is going to wipe away all traces of the dead, and that's going to save Jung from being caught. Uh, but there's going to be, for him, an unbearable feeling of guilt to remain for a long time. Well, this is a dream that uh, our Freudian colleagues, the psychoanalysts, have made uh, a lot of. <clears throat> because they've also looked over our shoulders at this material. And, um, of course, for them, 
Um, Siegfried is nothing but a simply disguised Siegfried. And um, given the anniversary, um, it seems quite clear to them that um, Freud was absolutely right that um, Jung did have a death wish toward him. And this is how Jung handled um, the guilt at breaking off the all-important relationship to Freud and the price that uh, Jung paid for um, uh, the rupture of an object relation was uh, um, um, a veiled psychotic episode. That's pretty much... uh, the way they play this. Um, For me, as a Jungian analyst with um, faith in the just-so quality of the unconscious, I prefer to use some amplification and go back into the myth that the dream itself brings up and point out that um, in the myth, Siegfried is the son of Sigismund. Sigismund was uh, Freud's original name and then it was shortened to Sigmund. So that uh, what I think Jung was killing was his sonship to Freud, the divine crown prince hero of the psychoanalytic movement. It was that heroic role within Freud's psyche and within the psychoanalytic movement that I think Jung had to kill off. Um, And that the death wish that Freud felt with his acute feeling function, Freud had a remarkable introverted feeling, um, was rather to the identification with this son role which was too restrictive uh, too wrong for the person uh, Jung was going to be and so he simply broke the identification that he had made with the first uh, really um, compellingly interesting and and briefly satisfactory father that he'd ever had because his own father was an extreme disappointment to him in uh, our modern uh, language uh, of uh, self-psychology from uh, Heinz Kohut we would say that uh, uh, there was an enormous injury to uh, Jung's uh, idealized parental imago by having Paul Jung for a father. Paul Jung was a a man who was not very successful in his own career and didn't have a great deal of integrity. He had lost uh, his uh, uh, faith in uh, Christianity and continued to work as a minister anyway, as if nothing had happened, and then died at an early age. And this was absolutely unbearable young. And of course in Freud he found a man who was quite opposite. Freud never lost his faith in his own uh, uh, 
theory, which in fact became a kind of dogma for him, became a kind of love object, almost an anima object to which uh, uh, his theory in a sense was his anima, so that he actually had his uh, 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 colleagues swear loyalty to it as medieval knights would have to swear fealty to a lady and promise never to betray it uh, in any way, which of course uh, was completely against the spirit of science. But at least Freud was a man who uh, uh, stood by what he believed in and uh, was a man of sufficient stature to... um, Uh, repair a certain amount of that tremendous wound Jung had in his inability to idealize someone. Um, Although, of course, there were times when uh, Freud was extremely disappointed in... uh, uh, I mean, Jung was extremely disappointed in Freud. So breaking the identification with Freud left Jung really without a rudder. I don't know if any of you have ever broken an identification with someone where you've allowed someone to pretty much organize your psychological experience for you in lieu of being yourself, yes, but nevertheless that identification became your way through life. If you've, and then something in you can't stand having that in place. Some some deeper part of the self demands uh, that you uh, get that person out of the center of your psyche and uh, uh, get about the business of being yourself. And I think if any of you have ever done that, you know what a what a profoundly upsetting experience it really is, because you have not only um, the guilt at uh, biting the hand that fed you. But you also uh, have lost your dominant personality organization. In other words, you simply don't know who you are. And this was precisely the situation uh, Jung felt himself to be in. And... um, Interestingly, it was not far off the situation that Europe was in around 1912 when uh, um, the great peace that had lasted almost a hundred years, at least uh, uh, for the main, although of course, as always in the history of the human race, there's always some war somewhere. Nevertheless, in terms of... uh, great world problems. Uh, The peace after the defeat of Napoleon had lasted for nearly a hundred years, and a kind of civilization had grown up uh, uh, all through the 19th century as a consequence of that, that broke down massively around 1912 and 1913, so that the world uh, that... uh, um, had been simply vanished after 1914. And so many people call 1912 the beginning of the 20th century. There are all kinds of evidences of that uh, in painting and in music 
politics that uh, something was beginning to break down. And so the outer world was breaking down uh, for Jung just at the same time his inner world was breaking down. And so uh, he was very much uh, uh, alive to the collective events and having visions of the bloodbath of World War One, and also uh, associating it to um, the loss of uh, the hero archetype. And I must say that it's really only now, um, 75 years later, uh, that it all begins to make sense to us that what really began in 1912 was not um, the beginning of the modern age, but actually the beginning of the end of the modern age. And then in fact, um, the modern attitude which had been gradually shaped over the 19th century was founded on a hero motif which was doomed to bite the dust in a prolonged outpouring of blood if which World War I was just the first act as Virginia Woolf realized when she wrote that last book uh, Between the Acts that we would have a World War II and that we would have a Korean War, but that also it would be a, a long uh, acting out of a dying of the hero as uh, the dominant of, uh, of our culture. And that we, in fact, have been moving all along toward what people are now calling the postmodern age, in which heroic consciousness is not the point. So that Jung was coming in right at the beginning with his psyche on um, uh, perhaps the most important movement in the psyche um, since the medieval synthesis broke down uh, in favor of the Renaissance idea of the dignity of man. In other words, we were with the dignity of man came. Um, the danger of heroic inflation and of too much emphasis upon the hero archetype. And that continued to build in various ways through all the centuries that followed uh, until finally it all began to break down just at the point that uh, depth psychology uh, was being born And the first attempt uh, to make it work was on that old heroic model. Freud the hero with his self-analysis and Jung the hero's son. And it was that that Jung broke right at the beginning to start the psychology that still got us in its grip today, that we're still trying to learn today. Now, 
imagine being there then. It's so easy to talk about it after 75 years, but imagine being there then in 1912 and 1913 and um, throwing overboard the basic orienting principle that had been essentially guiding men like Jung who were interested in uh, consciousness and in uh, appraising the human conditions. The very archetype that had in effect organized experience for men like Jung since Montaigne's day. Imagine throwing that out because that's what he threw out when he threw out Siegfried. He was absolutely lost. He just... had nary a clue as to how to proceed. And the tools that he had, which were these finely honed conceptual instruments, the words, the terms, the languages, the categories, all of those things, no longer seemed to be like laboratory tools that he could pick up and use at will to appraise people from outside. As he put it... um, It was as if in that laboratory the instruments were flying around the room because um, (coughs) he was discovering that all of these ideas are um, finally not his but the psyche's. The psyche can uh, give them to us or yank them back at will. So here's a man in a very confused and disoriented uh, inner space. Uh, As Gregory Bateson says, um, uh, he was a man whose epistemology was confused. And when your epistemology is confused, you, uh, you become psychotic. And indeed, the family had an invasion of ghosts in which everyone saw them. Seven Sermons of the Dead uh, in the midst of that. And he was in a creative crisis. Uh, Until things quieted down, he certainly could not write again. And uh, so, yes, it was said that there was a Zurich school and uh, some papers that Jung had written along the way of uh, the break with Freud before things started getting so hot internally, were published. And in English, the book that uh, had been the occasion for uh, uh, the escalating bitterness, Symbols of Transformation, was published, and these uh, uh, papers on analytical psychology were published, um, so that it looked as if there was activity particularly with English translations, but this was all work done before. The actual man was making mud pies in the backyard and uh, going into the study with his active imaginations and uh, uh, seeing his patients and uh, rather estranged from a number of former professional colleagues and in uh, very bad shape indeed. 
And he was also in the midst of a major love crisis because uh, he had decided uh, to uh, accept a relationship with his former patient, Tony Wolf. He had referred her to someone else uh, after the end of some work with him, and she was still in love with him at the end of the work, and he hadn't seen her for several months, and uh, he went through a lot of inner turmoil and uh, a lot of soul-searching, and finally decided that he must have this relationship, and basically uh, installed her in his life as a kind of second relationship with the full knowledge of, uh, of his wife, Emma Young, to the point that uh, he would see Tony Wolf on Wednesday afternoon and she would come uh, uh, to dinner uh, with the family on Sunday afternoon. And somehow all of this was going on at this time and he had to sacrifice uh, social level he had attained for a much more, uh, uh, some would say, putting it charitably, a much more bohemian arrangement despite the uh, way in which uh, uh, Emma Young, with her remarkable qualities, kept this together. So it was uh, a time in many, many ways of personality and social breakdown for Jung. And when he finally had worked on his fantasies enough to come to the psyche from inside and experience it this time as something he had less choice over, but something that insisted on expressing itself through him in just its particular way, with just its particular style, um, and had really accepted the reality of the psyche as something you don't fool around with or manipulate, but something that must be honored, um, something that... Uh, I suppose every one of you in this room knows now, but was in many ways a new attitude. Really approaching the psyche with a psychological attitude, when he had finally found that attitude toward the psyche which is appropriate to psyche, which Joseph Henderson is now calling the psychological attitude, doesn't depend upon kind of borrowed scientism, as if the psyche were something else that could be studied from outside. But in that alchemical way, washing the material in its own water, when Jung had learned to do this by building his uh, psychology from his fantasies, and it had begun to come up for air, the first book that he wrote was the book Psychological Types. And he called it, um, in the English translation, um, Psychological Types or the Psychology of Individuation. 
it was to this model that we're going to talk about all through this weekend um, that Jung turned to orient himself this time on a more authentic basis and to establish his new ego position, his new conscious position. And if you get nothing else out of this entire uh, seminar, but the idea that psychological types uh, has everything to do with finding one's own unique orientation when one has been sufficiently disoriented to need it, you'll have gotten the main point. It's from that point of view that I want to be talking about this with you. This is not um, a theory to be used glibly to classify people from outside. That misses the point. It is not... Um, a 19th century uh, scientific theory based on uh, heroic consciousness. It's probably the first postmodern psychological theory and it's based on empathic participation in the life of the psyche through suffering through the process of trying to find one's own standpoint in the middle of an ever-shifting psychological ground that one cannot escape from. And it's not truly an heroic um, ego model from outside but rather, it is an archetype of orientation. What we're looking at in the system of psychological types, with its fourfoldness, its two axes, the thinking-feeling axis and the sensation-intuition axis, We'll go over these again and again through the weekends. Sometimes the rational and the irrational axis, they're called, um, is a, um, a kind of simple mandala, a simple um, uh, archetypal model organizing the possibilities of um, consciousness. Whenever you use a fourfold model, you know that you're confessing a kind of ignorance. In one of her uh, seminars, von Franz talks about how um, the ancient map makers, uh, before they knew for sure that the world was round in a geographic way that someone had no one had actually proved it by uh, navigation, although the idea had been there uh, long before Columbus, um, could only map out the world as far as they knew it to be. And when they reached the edges of the waters and uh, didn't know what was beyond, uh, they would put um, four uh, 
angels blowing trumpets, representing um, the unknown thing, or perhaps they have an, an image of the four winds or something. Whenever you get to the edge of what you know, the four comes up to kind of take care of what you don't know. So Jung, um, dealing with this unknown thing, what is my psyche, what is my psychology, um, came up with this fourfold model. And immediately there's the confession uh, that he doesn't really know what he's talking about, but he has to have some way of talking about it, so he uses this mandala, this fourfold differentiating model. So we're dealing with an archetype for what? Not simply the psyche. I think that's a little vague. I think particularly the archetype of the differentiation of consciousness. The point is that if consciousness is going to differentiate, if we're going to get beyond simple identification, and so few of us do, really, if we're not simply going to be, as Jung said, most people uh, um, go to their graves, infants, or as Joseph Henderson said, most people live their complexes as if they were reality. If one is not simply going to be um, one's mother's daughter or one's father's son or um, somebody's child, um, if we're going to break these, or someone's husband or someone's wife or someone's lover or whatever, if we're going to break these identifications, going to be ourselves, um, and we are going to uh, be that uh, trembling special thing, which is consciousness, if we take that journey at all, Jung is saying, by publishing this book at this time, um, this psychological types mandala is the archetype that he thinks will be our guide for the differentiation of our consciousness. Now what does consciousness mean in the Jungian sense? It isn't simply uh, non-comatose, although that does help. Late in his life, Jung was asked um, in Zurich by some institute students um, does consciousness help in the process of individuation and of course this was a sincerely asked question because there is this idea that individuation is an entirely natural process. Uh, 
on the other hand, there's the question of can analysis enhance individuation and what are the role of the analyst's interpretations and reading and education and people being made aware of things and so forth. So Jung was asked, does consciousness help in the process of individuation? And Jung's answer was, consciousness is the human being's individuation. He said, if a plant has it in its rhizome to produce a certain flower, and the plant flowers, you can speak of the flower as the individuation of the plant. And he said, consciousness is the human being's flower. And with the book Psychological Types, he's telling us that if we're lucky enough to produce the flower, if as Dylan Thomas says, the force that through the green fuse drives happens to drive us to produce the flower, flower will differentiate according to this fourfold model. So, someone like me, or any of you listening, can hearing it, can really only talk about this model. Um, in terms of his own individuation. In other words, I can only tell you about this as a sequence of my discoveries of how the different functions came alive in me and where they seem to fit uh, within my own uh, uh, psychology. And I found it helpful to go back to that early Jung who worked with uh, complex theory and before he had his creative breakdown and see that there was all along uh, a subtle connection between um, the types and the various complexes that come up as one goes through uh, a deep searching analytic individuation process. Um, Jung noticed right at the beginning, in that first grasp, um, that there was uh, a there there in the unconscious, that some important process was interfering with the association test, certain peculiarities of response. Uh, and that it wasn't enough simply to say that there were complexes interfering um, with the test, but that there was something else because some people seem to take to the test itself 
in a particular style and other people went at it in, a, in another style. He noticed that some people had to um, relate themselves to the words on the test and establish some kind of feeling connection to them before they could uh, uh, do the test at all, whereas other people could stay back coolly and simply handle the words as they came up. And um, he really uh, was so much more at that time like the latter group of people that he really couldn't understand the former. So he called them in that very early uh, 1904, uh, 1905 period, uh, he called those people um, the subjectively evaluating value predicative type. <laughs> Meaning that these are people who had to predicate a value in, in the experience at all before they could relate to it. That's where he was then with the feeling type. And the other kind of uh, person who uh, could stay out of it all uh, and just look at it objectively, that was the thinking type. For him, that was the objective type at that point. Um, and at first, he thought um, that this was all there was, and he tried to cram all of typology into this, so that uh, not only uh, were these the uh, feeling and thinking types, but they also were the uh, introverts and the extroverts. And what we now call Logos and Eros was shoved into that so that there was this initial um, um, compounding and, and conflation of all the concepts of typology until the Big Bang when it all came loose a little bit and we could see what was uh, actually in the, in the uh, universe. And he tried, even as a psychoanalyst, to... Um, talk about the fact that analysts really ought to take into account the fact that not everyone can be analyzed in the same way because there are regular temperamental differences. And by then he knew about um, uh, William James tender-minded versus tough-minded and he liked William James and he met William James when he and Freud uh, visited Clark University uh, and in 1909 and so he said you know we really ought to uh, realize that there are two groups of people the introverts and the extroverts and uh, he was uh, going to present this at the Munich Psychoanalytic Congress and he was talking about the planning for this uh, and talking about types um, and Freud fainted. Jung had to carry Freud to uh, uh, a couch. So um, right at the beginning, you see, um, talking about types touches complexes. It's a, 
it's a powerhouse of a of a subject. And I myself have had my violent resistances to uh, the way Jung laid it out uh, at the beginning. Because unfortunately, the first thing everyone got hold of was this distinction between introvert and extrovert, as if these were things in themselves and that there really are two classes of people, the introverts and the extroverts. And this kind of... um, Jung, from before the individuation journey, has somehow um, clung on like a cloud to uh, confuse things for us. As I talk to you about uh, introvert and extrovert, for the most part, I'm going to confine myself to using these as adjectives, introverted and extroverted. Adjectives to modify the four functions, thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition, which I think are far more central and far more important Moreover, I'm not going to try so quickly to uh, say of people um, that someone is an introvert or someone is an extrovert because I found right at the beginning of my own journey and well along into it, so well along into it that I was uh, practically a Jungian analyst myself and I still couldn't decide if I was an introvert or an extrovert because it was so clear that under certain circumstances I was introverted and under other circumstances I was extroverted. And that indeed half my friends uh, were absolutely convinced that I was introverted. In fact, I had some friends in psychiatric residency who were reading Jung and felt that I was the only person they knew who was introverted. <laughs> Whereas I had an equal number of others, including myself, who was largely convinced that uh, my nature was extroverted. The reason for this was that uh, people who um, were responding to my thinking and to the way that I go into my own mind to make up my own words and my own uh, names for things and go inside into an interior place to kind of check that these words really fit a kind of subjective experience that I have, are experiencing the introversion of my thinking, but that those who have had the experience of having me practically read their mind as I'm talking and say something that they were just thinking or use an example that had just passed through their mind and have experienced me rather merging with uh, their experience in an almost uncanny way uh, are just as convinced of uh, my extroversion because they're feeling the extroversion of my intuitive function which does not go inside, but very much goes outside to merge. 
now um, one of Jung's uh, uh, early associates was Beatrice Hinkle, who translated uh, uh, Symbols of Transformation when it was still called The Psychology of the Unconscious back in 1916. And uh, before the book on psychological types had been published, she herself published uh, her own book called The Recreating of the Individual. And uh, I have a dear friend uh, <coughs> named Nancy Hale, uh, a writer and uh, uh, fiction and novels, uh, who's had an analysis with Beatrice Hinkle in the 1940s and uh, has been someone that I've talked to about uh, my involvement in Jungian things. Uh, learned Beatrice Hinkle's uh, uh, system of classification, which Beatrice Hinkle talked about uh, emotional introverts and subjective extroverts. And Nancy Hale uh, helped solve my problem for me by explaining to me um, that I was a subjective extrovert with lots of introspection. <laughs> so uh, you can see that uh, there are many ways to this. I think we have to completely rethink uh, introversion and extroversion before we go a step further, because if we don't, uh, you'll all, I think, rather quickly get lost. Um, certainly shy and gregarious don't make it, because I've met some extremely uh, ebullient people who seem to have uh, a superior introverted uh, function, and I've met some very uh, 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 quiet people who have a superior extroverted uh, function. Uh, when we have to uh, talk at all about um, whether one is predominantly one or the other, let's remember that we're only talking about um, the function that comes first. I would call it function number one. Uh, the uh, the so-called superior function. Um, the function that we feel superior about, among other things. If we're lucky enough to have find, found it, remember that most people um, are not very well differentiated. And for many people, the psychological nature is as yet unborn. But if one is in the process of being born, and one is far enough along to have broken the first identification, and uh, undone the pact with the devil that we all sign when children. You know, the reason that for the Faust mythology is so popular, as a colleague of mine says, is that we've all sold out. We are all born into a family with um, a typological bias, and we're all born to a culture that has a psychological bias. And uh, we learn very early that if we don't play ball typologically and play the type game that uh, uh, 
that goes in our family and in our particular culture, um, we're not going to have um, um, the Faustian uh, goodies of beauty, money, and power. And uh, so for beauty, money, and power, uh, we sell out, most of us, unless we're extremely lucky to be born into a family with a good type fit. We sell out our birthright, our natural, innate uh, typology, and go along with the, the type program of the particular family we're in. And uh, we pay some of us an enormous price for that. In a patriarchal culture, this common human fact becomes desperate for half the citizens, the women, because one is not merely conforming to type expectations, but also to gender expectations. So that the woman's own ego, the woman's own superior function, is quite unwelcome, and the woman's own natural unfolding mandala is going to be uh, unwelcome because it's going to be feminine. And there's going to be an enormous uh, payoff for the woman if she will play ball and adapt through her animus. So that I found often in these lectures um, that um, women become irritated and finally very angry and because there's a frustration because the animus, which is such a great female impersonator, uh, has often differentiated a fourfold typology uh, out of thin air, so to speak, uh, which is quite capable of taking the type test and of listening to the psychological lecture and of creating an entire pseudo-personality that has next to nothing to do with the woman's own being and natural typology. So it's only if a woman has come so far that she's actually able to chuck all that animus adaptation and that false ego adaptation, that animus ego, uh, that um, and has begun to differentiate her own nature that she can then begin to use this fourfold model in a truly feminine way uh, to uh, uh, make sense of it. I think enough work has been done in the last 15 years particularly that enough women are coming forward with their own minds and their own voices and their own hearts and their own points of view that um, this will also make sense for women provided one is really talking about the real nature. But remember how easy it is to be uh, captured 
by that animus, and I'm aware that I'm a male giving the presentation, and I'm aware how much that can really catch the animus and the wish to comply and all the rest. And, uh, uh, don't comply. Be stubborn. Resist. Uh, you will anyway, but befriend your resistance uh, and, and try to make this your own and try to see where you come in and... Uh, In a country like America, where the uh, uh, this country is dedicated to the principle that all men are created equal, <laughs> where extroverted thinking is the uh, way, thinking for everybody that somehow leaves out all everybody else, um, the situation isn't so very different for a man whose superior function really is or is innately meant to be or is going to be introverted feeling because um, he, there's so much payoff for him in um, showing that he can think that uh, his adaptation is so frequently going to come through the anima, which for him, for this introverted feeling man, carries uh, extroverted thinking. So that with subtle signs of anima strain, and the anima can be a great male impersonator, but uh, uh, occasionally the, the whine in the voice gives away the strain on the anima, uh, or a certain uh, touchiness or a, a, a bit of passive-aggressive irritability, just a touch of uh, uh, strain uh, shows that uh, this man who thinks so well and knows the names for everything and is so careful with, with, the, with the macho trip of the extroverted thinking is really using his inferior function to mount uh, a personality. And... Uh, not daring to claim the introverted feeling that would make him uh, a sissy uh, in, a, in a world in which uh, blue the thinking color is for boys and red the feeling color, but not even red, pink is for girls, and not even women for girls. Yes. So, uh, not everyone is lucky enough to have a superior function that they use and know about. Not everyone has even square one filled in yet. Um, and it doesn't seem to work to have someone fill it in for you. It doesn't seem to work to be told what type you are unless a certain amount of inner work has already taken place. It seems that what we all have to do is, so to speak, um, drop anchor. We have to establish what Edward Edinger calls an ego-self-axis for ourselves before we can know um, enough of who we are. And um, to do that, 
one has to establish, so to speak, one's spine. I like to think of uh, the types in a bodily way. And if I stand here, I'd like you to just think of the head. And then there's a spine that leads down to the tailbone. And for each of us, establishing this axis seems to me to be the important first step in type. This axis is a kind of plumb line between what we're best at and what we're worst at, and they seem to be wonderfully related to each other. I learned very early on that um, I was very good at reading people's minds. I uh, found when I was three and four years old that I would uh, say things uh, that would absolutely astound my mother because uh, I would know things I couldn't possibly know. One day she was looking out the window um, from an apartment we had in Baltimore down several stories and uh, um, a little girl was uh, uh, that we knew named Sally was uh, uh, <coughs> sitting and squatting on the street uh, uh, to go potty and uh, uh, my mother was thinking to herself uh, how, uh, how awful this was and uh, I uh, sitting at her feet uh, uh, well under the window and completely unable to see out it uh, said bad Sally so forth. And uh, my mother rather liked this in me. She thought this was kind of wonderful. On the other hand, she didn't like it at all um, <laughs> that uh, I was constantly losing things. She used to say, you know, you lose things. One could follow where you've been to the city by seeing the trail of the uh, coins and keys and watches. And, uh, that you leave behind you. So I learned rather, rather early on that uh, I had a rather remarkable intuitive gift and that I was equally uh, horrendous in the area of sensation. And it seemed always to be very clear to me that there was some natural relation, that these were sort of ends of a continuum. I know some people like to separate these things up, but it's never seemed to me that I could ever separate these things about myself. So this is one of Jung's psychological ideas that's never given me any trouble whatsoever. It seemed almost self-evident to me that what I'm best at and what I'm worst at. So my spine is um, an intuitive head with a sensation tail. And... Uh, I've come to realize over years that it's an extroverted intuitive and an introverted sensation. And I must say that for the longest time 
I, uh, I felt the inferiority uh, much more than, um, than I felt the superiority because <coughs> aside from my mother, the world in which I grew up didn't have very much room for an extroverted, intuitive boy. Um, with a thinking type father it seemed very important that I learned to think and my father being an extroverted thinking type I learned very much according to uh, extroverted thinking uh, standards my father was a man who had his IQ published in uh, the uh, uh, Wichita, Kansas newspaper when he was a boy and uh, it was, uh, I think, the second highest IQ in the city, and uh, so uh, um, he had a mother who taught uh, Greek and Latin and uh, academic achievement and learning things, and the language was placed very high, and so I became, uh, in accord with this, um, a kind of good extroverted thinker for a long period of my life. Um, so that I became a kind of a superstar in, uh, in uh, junior high and high school sufficiently enough to uh, uh, get a scholarship to Harvard, uh, that temple of extroverted thinking, and uh, <laughs> with uh, the high suicide rate uh, because of the uh, damaged introverted feeling. And, uh, learned very much to uh, um, say what one ought to say. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.